Gordy, when did you decide you were going to be in the film industry? Um, well, I made a film, uh, Super 8 film, when I was 12 that I starred in and cast the neighborhood kids, shot the whole thing, wrote it, and showed it in my garage, sold pixie sticks, sold admission. So I don't think there was ever a time where I was not thinking about writing or making films, so uh, telling stories in that way. So there wasn't, there wasn't like I was doing something else and then I was like, oh, I need to, I wanna pursue this. It was like, I mean, when I was a kid, I made a film and told a story, so, so it's always been with me. That's cool. How did you get the word out about that screen, the garage screening? Uh, I think we probably made little, like, you know, my dad worked at Xerox, so we probably made a flyer and then did a mimeograph. This was in the 70s, so it was something like that. We probably handed out flyers and we just told everybody. I mean, the whole garage was filled with every kid in the neighborhood. It was pretty, yeah, I think we had Laurel and Hardy, like little Super 8s that we showed in the garage and stuff. It was like, it was a whole thing. We did pretty well. That's cool. You didn't have to worry about getting your, your tickets back from the theater. No, no. It was like, it was like, I think I made, I think that was the last profit, you know, I made for quite a while. It was, it was, uh, it was, oh, no, it was, it was a lot of fun. But yeah, that was one of my earliest memories. I still have that film too. So from the garage screening to the idea that, okay, I'm going to do this as an adult, um, how did that take shape? Um, I think, you know, uh, I started working on a play maybe in my early 20s um, and then the playwriting went into screenwriting. At some point I was like, I want to write, I had in my mind to write a screenplay and um, I wrote a, uh, I wrote a screenplay over 20 years ago about um, the black market for organs and it was just sort of this I wrote like a first draft I don't think I even finished the. I think I wrote the almost the whole draft and um, so yeah so that was my beginning into screenwriting and pursuing it obviously as something I wasn't writing it as a hobby I think I was writing speculatively to eventually make my way into the industry and get paid and you know be a professional so yeah, but it was like I said, it from it it was always in me of that period. I think through my teenage years, I was acting, and then I was acting a little bit into my twenties. So I was always around the storytelling, and then, like I said, I worked on the plays, and then then I wrote a screenplay. So that's interesting. What what about the uh, black market of organs intrigued you so much that you? I don't even remember the idea. I just remember that I don't even remember what happened. I, I know I still have a hard copy of it somewhere. I wrote it on one of these old Macs before Final Draft or any of those softwares even existed. And um, I don't remember what the story was, but I just remember it was like some you know dominatrix type woman in a black leather suit that was punching people out, and and there was some sort of organ. There was some sort of organ. I mean, I should go back and read it, you know, and and, and finish it, you know, like I, I do often with the mo other things, and I've had success doing that, so, but yeah, so that's that was the path to that. Right, so it wasn't a Disney film, obviously. No, it wasn't. It wasn't, <laughs> okay, it was uh -huh. not, it was, yeah, it was sort of a, you know, it was probably a year or two after Pulp Fiction, 
So there was probably a little bit of that influence. I think, I think you know, there was that influence in the early '90s of sort of, of that, of that kind of maybe those kind of that kind of characterization of, of uh, violence and sort of kitschy or whatever it was. I don't. I like literally have not read that in forever. So all I remember was, the first screenplay I wrote was about that. <laughs> What was your first success as a screenwriter? Well, my first, you know, obvious success was Love Liza. Writing my second script I wrote um, was a uh, drama. I wrote it in '96, the fall of '96, and um, you know, six years later at Sundance, it won the uh, Sundance, uh, the Waldo Salt Award, and it was bought by Sony Classics and released by Sony. And um, yeah, that was definitely um, the first sort of obvious success. I mean, I'd had other things like Option and things, but that was like sort of the conspicuous success. And, um, you know, my brother, uh, my little brother, I showed it to him uh, Labor Day weekend, um, 1996, and we were both back at my mom's house, and we were both happened to be there. And I said, "Oh man, I, you got to read this." And I just read, I just written the first draft. I said, "I think this is kind of good." And I don't know, I I think this is kind of cool. He read it and he was like, "I want to do this," and uh, and he had not shot Boogie Nights yet. He was about ready to shoot Boogie Nights that fall. And um, so that fall, he shot Boogie Nights with Paul Thomas Anderson. Paul Thomas Anderson read Love, Liza and actually gave it to Michelle Satter at Sundance. And they considered it for the lab, the Sundance lab. So that was very exciting. I ended up moving out to LA in February of 97. And then we started the process of trying to get the movie made. And then eventually it was shot in 2001. Um, Kathy Bates was in it. Um, but uh, yeah, so that all that stuff felt successful, you know. I mean, the idea that you know Sundance was interested, and I and you know it's great because I mean, you know, I just had a short film that I wrote and directed at Sundance in 2015, and Michelle Satter is still there, and she came up to me, and you know, we're we still know each other from when I she called me on the phone, and I was in upstate New York in the fall of '96. And she interviewed me about Love, Liza, and Paul had um, referred the project to them and said, hey, you should check this out. And she, you know, responded to the script. It didn't get in to the lab, but they were always tracking it, and then obviously it was accepted. Um, and Paul's movie, Hard Eight, was developed. Um, it was originally called Sydney, and his first feature was developed through the Sundance Lab, too. So that was, her, that was the relationship. Uh, with um, the lab that Paul had. So yeah, so all of that stuff was exciting, I think, but the most popular sort of thing that people would say would be that, oh, you know, Sundance, he won the award or whatever. And, but there was many other things that populated my professional career that were like, oh, this is exciting, you know. When you sat down to write Love, Liza, was that in your mind that it was going to have a, a trajectory like that? And did you expect I sat down, that? okay, so I sat down to write Love, Liza, and I, 
you know, I'd been driving a cab for three and a half years in Chicago, and I had just quit like about a month before because I'd I'd sideswiped a limousine, and I was like, I was sort of having this like mental breakdown or whatever, and I was like, I was like, right, I just want to write, and my family gave me a little bit of rent money, so that summer I just didn't work, and I was like, I got to do something, and so. I remember August 5th, it's very clear. I, wo I woke up and I had written like two pages of it and I wrote in like 18 days. I just sat there and wrote the whole thing. And, that, and I always wrote it with a sense that I would play the guy or not really like I would play the guy, but I, I did write it with a sense that what if I was gonna play the guy? And that really helped me as a writer, you know? It was like, it really got me I don't know, I don't really haven't really done that much a lot since then, but I should probably think about that sometimes because it was really effective. I was like, what if I played this guy? You know, and it was like, it was that Orson Wellesy type of thing where it was like, it was like, I'm gonna do everything like sort of when I was a kid. And I did this, uh, so I wrote it like that. You know, I didn't write it for my brother. I didn't, and I showed up to my brother just because I was like, I was like, this is good, man. You know, and I, I knew it was good. You know, and I gave it to him, and he was like, he, 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 I gave it to him like 10.30 at night, you know, or something, and he read it. And the next day he was like, I just read the whole thing, you know, and he, he totally responded to it. He was like, I wanna do it. And, um, and you know, I think it's like historically you look back and people are like, it looks like, it, like, I guess it was like two brothers making this movie together, but my brother ended up, being Philip Seymour Hoffman and doing all these other things. So it look, historically, it looks like one thing, but he actually was just an actor who was like, I want to do this role, you know, because it was a cool role. It was hard as shit, but um, it was, it was, you know, he liked it. And then we went on this journey together and, you know, and it was, it, so yeah, so that's, I'm not sure what the question was, but yeah, you know, so that was what it was. Yeah, the, just did you expect this type of journey? And it sounds like you, that wasn't what no, you set out. No, it was to like do. It, it just it was like no, you know, you didn't you don't expect all sorts of things, you know. And then you just it did. I didn't expect it would take so long, you know, to make it. And you know, I was like, there were so many things you're like, oh my gosh, you know. And you didn't expect it not to do so, all sorts of things. And then you expect, you know. But I'm very we're very lucky because we made a film that a lot of people. There's plenty of people that it's their favorite film, you know, and it's like, that's the, I think that's the thing that a writer, I tell people, it's like, the greatest success is if you can write somebody's favorite film, you know, like if you, if you, if they have like a poster of your film and you might write something that like, but if they're like, I, you write something and that's their favorite film, you know, that's, it doesn't get any better than that, you know, cause you're never going to get everybody to like your film. And the money is going to always disappear. So, so if, as long as you have somebody come up to you, and I still have people coming up to me and are moved by the film, tear up when they talk about it, and they go, oh my God, you wrote Love, Liza, you know, and it means something to them. And you're like, that's, so it's fortunate because that is the kind of thing that um, has guided me. Because it's like, nothing else matters, like, except like, giving your audience that experience and if you can get that to get that to people and have some people think it's a crap or whatever and some people think it's a nepotism job or you know whatever and it's just like flimsy or whatever it doesn't matter because it's like 
it's a very it's a personal experience. Films are personal. There's plenty of people that I love Citizen Kane. I think it is genius, and other people just hate it. You know, and it's like there you go. You know, so. Were you thinking about the characters while you were driving before the the limo accident? Were you were you know because you sounds like you had a lot of time. I thought I came up with the idea for Love Liza because I was I was when I was driving a cab. I came up with ideas all the time, you know, and uh, and I just it was one of those ideas. I just saw a woman, maybe she was homeless something, but she was by a, the gas. Um, pumps at a gas station I you know as your taxi driver you're living at the gas station a lot and um, you are you you're always there and I saw her and I was like and I just put in my mind of this idea of like a yuppie which is not an acronym that's used anymore but it's like a professional white guy in a suit suddenly starting to huff gas I just saw this guy is like huffing gas and that was the germ of the idea and then I had to come up with a motive and then I came up with the motive, and then I started writing it from there, and then I created everything from there, and I came up with like a sort of a MacGuffin-y hook, so to speak, around you know 10 minutes into the movie, and it's that that hook sort of drove the movie, and um, and then I just like I said, I just sort of splatted it out, and I, I honestly, you know, I probably could have been rewritten a bunch more times, you know, it just wasn't. But it did get rewritten, and I did fix a little bit. And as a baby writer, then you know, so that's where it came from. How much time today in 2018 do you dedicate to writing? Um, I write. Uh, I don't write in a disciplined way, in that in like a timing thing, like oh, you know, a certain hours of the day, every single day, Monday through Friday, or anything like that. I'm one of those guys that sort of writes in bunches and writes certain times. So there's certain days that I don't write. I wrote five pages this morning. Um, it wasn't, I did not do that for the benefit of the film Courage interview. I just, <laughs> I just was like, yesterday I was like, I need to like, I really want, and I, I'm on rewriting this thing and I've been going around and around with it and I started really a pay, like a different, totally different approach on this script. And so I was like, I need to start really I have two projects that I'm working on right now, both of them to direct, and both of them have gone through a lot of different development. And they're both, there's people involved and already producers and stuff. So, and I want to make one of them next year. So I'm just like, I really need to like, you know, and I found myself um, bored, getting really frustrated with this one thing and realizing it's like, I'm at that point where I was like, I really just, oh man, I don't know if I can figure this out. And I was like, you gotta hang in there. And I did, and then I came up with a way in to, the, to open it again. And so I wrote like a page on Friday, cause I was so, I had this idea for the opening. So I wrote the page, and then today I wrote like four more pages. So I'm like around page five. And then I sent it over to my staff. I send my pages in and they kind of take a look at them and give me like quick feedback on like if I'm going the right direction or something like that. And then this afternoon, I'm gonna to go to the other project where I'm really outlining it, because it's a heist. And so I, it's like I've gotta do a lot of architecture stuff with it. <laughs> you know, it's like, whereas this other thing is, is a very much like a 
like a Love Liza type of movie where there's a protagonist and they're on a mission kind of thing, and it's that kind of a piece. So it's very much an extension of like Love Liza, but in that structurally a character arc kind of thing. But I'm going to be directing it. So you said about getting bored, and so when you get that signal that just nothing's happening, what's your process? Do you kind of you sit cannot it abandon it? Every every script, you know, you get bored with something, that means you're actually getting somewhere with the movie. People are amateurs primarily because they can't get through the professional period of hating what they're writing, bored, frustrated, looking at every page going, I hate all these scenes. I'm like, I'm like, ugh, there's no magic here. I don't like, I'm not enjoying myself. It's not gratifying. So you have to suck it up and get through that period. You can't, you go, oh, I'm bored. You're just gonna go right back to where that point is again. So I, everything I've ever, I mean, this is a fame, there's a famous quote from Kurosawa about this that I look at almost every single day, the quote, and it's, you know, it's you should put it up on your little thing with this video maybe, because people probably ask about what it is, but it's basically, he talks about every script falling into despair, and he uses the word despair. You know, and despair is a strong word, but that's exactly what that is. It's like, it's like I can't figure this out. I don't know how to figure this out. And I just wanna, I, I really wanna start with this because this other thing, I know what to do with it. I'm gonna start it and it's gonna be okay. Not knowing that, or not remembering that everything you write, you come to that place of despair. And the art, the artist, the, the writer, the director, the actor, whatever, has to walk through that period of like, that sort of desert period of the creative process, or they're not going to, you know, because then something will click. And that's what happened is I hung in there with this one thing where I was recently gone, and then I came up with an image and I had some input from somebody, like just life experience, and I had an incident, I sort of was like, what if I move it and I started over there? And I do that, and all of a sudden I had a, I had an idea, and then all of a sudden I was like, okay, this is how it is. And I had a, I cracked my problem, and suddenly I was like, okay, I'm back in the saddle. I got this thing going. Now I can incorporate the other things I've been working on that I still like, but I, I got through that period of like, of just discouragement. So is that something that when you know you're quote in boredom? That that you have a ritual for because I'm I'm sure it's you not know, a ritual. Right? It's just a, the ritual is staying patient. You know, people don't have any patience. You know, they don't have. You know, corporate structures I think don't allow for patience when they're making studio pictures and stuff. It doesn't. You know, it's like when they announce a release date and the script's not done. Well, that's counterintuitive actually. You know, because you're not. That's like, okay, I'm going to show you this, but I haven't written it yet that creates dysfunction. And so that's why I think a lot of bets are off and that's why you have projects not really work out. You go to a movie, you go into the theater and you're like, what just happened there? And it's very difficult So because it really eliminates the principle of patience. Because you're not gonna be like, well, let's pump the brakes. I, I, I really, this thing needs about six more months. I gotta figure this out. Can we move this release date 
uh, back for a year and a half, you know, and tell the Disney stockholders that, you know, the Star Wars movie is not going to come out for four years because we want to make sure that the script is good, you know, and <laughs> that's not going to that's not going to work. So and that's OK. And it doesn't mean that you can. I mean, the guys are Blank. I mean, you know, you can write under duress and, and, and it can be successful. Having deadlines and structure is fine. I mean, it's like but overall, when you are stuck, having patience and being like, do not give up, do not relent, hang in there, and don't like change gears, just hang in there. And I did, and it didn't, a couple weeks, it was maybe a little bit of time, but I was kind of going, oh God. And then all of a sudden, but I, but I kept telling myself, no, 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 just keep hanging in there. And like, what, what can you do here? You're not gonna move off this, is you have to finish. There's nothing palatable about working on this script at all. It's just, there's nothing in there. You want to start working on something else. You have a number of ideas that you're so much sexier, attractive, you want to jump into, but it's like, you can't let go of this. You have to stay, hang in there. So I always just, so whatever the process is, doesn't matter. It's just exhibiting patience and realizing it's like, if you hang in there, the path is going to open up. According to Kurosawa, the path will open up and then you'll, and then you'll be like, oh, and then the light bulb will go off in it. And that's what's happened with everything, really. Apocalypse Now, you don't want it to become your, what is it, Heart of Darkness? Or Did you see the documentary? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> you know, it's really good, but, <laughs> but, but that's yeah. also part. <laughs> uh -huh. But I think that, I mean, absolutely, I think, I mean, if anything, you know, what Coppola was doing with Apocalypse Now was having patience and hanging in there. Because it would have, there were a lot of places you want to give up, but he, you have to fight, you know, you have to fight through knowing and also maintaining like, no, I have to tell the truth. I want to be original. I want to be compelling. I want to make imaginative choices. I'm not going to like, because, you know, to get through the darkness, you, you're bored or you're stuck because you're not giving up and you're not like compromising. You know, you're not saying, well, no, nah, let's just shoot it anyways. It's good enough. It's already done. Who cares if we haven't figured out the third act? Let's just do it. It's, it's good enough. It doesn't have to be perfect. You know, I had a filmmaker say to me once, Gordy, it doesn't have to be perfect. And it's like, you're right. It's never going to be perfect. But, you will, but what it's implying is like a little bit of like disregard of like, who cares? If you know something is, core, is kind of crap, or it does not believable, or it's not logical, you know, or it's not vulnerable, or doesn't, it's not clear, or whatever. All the problems. If you're aware of problems, but you're like, well, who cares? You know, then you're not going to make somebody's favorite movie that way, right? So. When did you begin Blue Cat screenplay competition? I started Blue Cat in 1998, so it's 20 years ago. It's over 20 years ago, and um, I started the competition. I thought, oh, this could be a good side business, or I don't know. Like motives were sort of like, you know, like oh, this could be, this could work, and it was a long time ago. It was before everything, really, before before MySpace. Uh, it was it was a long time ago, and um, every script was sent in hard copies, and people sent in personal checks. It was no, it was a long time ago, 
And, um, but yeah, that's how it started. And it started off very small. For the first four or five years, I got like 200, 300 entries. You know, we only accepted features, you know, so. So why did you start it? Um, I probably started it to make money. You know, that was probably, honestly, that was probably the, that was, that was the reason. It was like, oh, this, this is, this could be profitable and I, and I'm a writer and I just saw, it was an entrepreneurial type of impulse probably. Um, and yeah, and it started and it was like, that is not a good reason to start a screenplay contest. You know, it's like making money is not like it's never, it's turned out to be like, that. if you want to make money, do something else. But it ended up being like immediately very gratifying. And it's made me, it's, I mean, I cannot repay what Blue Cat has done for me as a writer. I love to teach. It's made me a better writer and maybe better storyteller. And I love helping people. I love helping writers. I help, help, love helping people, but I love helping screenwriters. And immediately when I gave that first check to the winner and I, and I met them and took them out to dinner and it was amazing, you know? And so it's still, you know, we just had a reading of two of our winners that are local. We had them over, we had actors, we read the short and the pilot. They had all their friends come and we did reading, we had a pizza and I gave them the checks with in front of their friends. And, you know, I mean, it's to be able to support writers, you know, it's ended up. So, you know, sometimes you start something out and you're like, oh, maybe this would be good, you know, good business or something that would be cool to start off. And, you know, there's maybe there's, uh, a niche, a market niche for this or something, but like anything else in life, you start something off and it ends up becoming something else. And you're like, I didn't expect this, you know? And, um, and now I've, you know, Blue Cat's gone through a lot of iterations and growth patterns and things over the years, but I really fight for it, you know, and I really love it. And, um, and, uh, there's been times where I probably had an opportunity to let it go but I just thought people love this and, and it's brought so much, it's given so much to me and it's given my life so much meaning that I don't really wanna know what my life's gonna be like if I'm not doing Blue Cat and somebody else does Blue Cat, I walk away. Um, so I still get so much out of it, so it's really great. It's an interesting uh, trajectory to things when you start it for one reason and then it like goes through all these sort of evolutions or whatever and, and I'm sure there's times with everything it's stressful, but then you kind of imagine like, what would I do waking up and I'm not thinking about it? Well, it's, 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 uh, we've been really good at it. Like, that's the thing. I mean, the bottom line is there's not too many things that I'm, uh, that we're good at. Like I'm, me specifically, I'm not like an expert in a lot of things, but I've been very, very good at picking people who are finalists and winners and they tend to like go on and we just were talking today, the Castle Rock episode directed by Anna, Anna Lily Amapur, oh. and she was our winner 10 years ago, and she's a member of the Academy now, and yeah. there's, you know, one of our finalists wrote Papillon, another finalist wrote Nutcracker that's coming out the end of the year, another one of our winners wrote another script, um, now I forgot what the name of the movie is, but it's coming out in the, at the end of this year, Maisie Williams from Game of Thrones is starring in it, 
that's gratifying. You know, is like I have an ability to recognize like this is a special writer when they're submitting a screenplay contest, and we give them a little love, we give them a little money, we give them a little recognition, and we say keep going. And and our ability to recognize those people and say and give them a little encouragement, and then people are able to look and say like, hey, Blue Cat has an eye. The industry definitely recognizes now that like when we said we announce our. Stuff they tend to, they go send us the logline, send us the scripts. We get the script requests because they know they all understand that we have had a track record over the years of identifying people when they're amateurs that eventually become go on staff, make movies, um, write specs, whatever it might be. So um, and that continues. So I think that's another thing that keeps has always kept me close to Blue Cat and wants it to continue to grow and develop um, and become bigger and um, because of our track record. And realizing that if I gave that away, that's not easily transferable. You can't just be like, oh, somebody else just pick. Clearly, whatever we're doing with our readers and how our process and my process and my eye and my experience as a writer myself and developing things in myself, all of that creates an environment where Blue Cat does find people. You know, sales pitch or not, you know, you can take it for whatever it is. The fact is, is that that's what happens with Blue Cat. That's why people are attracted to it. If people aren't ready to submit to any competition, they shouldn't enter. And if you're never ready to submit to Blue Cat, you don't have to enter Blue Cat. But I think that's why, personally for me, why I continue to honor the organization and continue to support it and want it to keep stay healthy because of the impact it's had on people and because it it on a personal level it provides me um, you know substantial meaning to you know and purpose you know it's like you know I feel grateful that I'm able to able that Blue Cat exists for people and that people enjoy submitting to us getting notes and all that stuff that mechanism and me not wanting. I don't, I didn't, there, like I said, there's not been a, there's not been a, maybe there's been a couple forks in the road where, okay, like if you're making, you know, if, if, if you're a professional writer and you want to make films and you're working on your films, do you have room and space for this, you know, to continue to sort of manifest Blue Cat or whatever and run it or manage it or whatever? And the answer is like, you know, I, I got to dance with what brought me. I mean, the fact is, is that, the process of working with writers has obviously benefited me personally. Um, like I said, the last thing, it's, you know, it's not on a material level, it's, it's really overall, it's my ability to be able to express myself. A 12 year old kid that made that short film, it still supports that, that kid, you know, is me being able, just right now, talking to you about, about screenwriting, you know, this is, this is this this goes back into my own work and my ability to express myself so from what you've seen with the screenplay competition what would you say most new writers baby writers have trouble with poor opening or a weak ending well i think i i think writers in general struggle with endings i think that that's why i think there's probably a lot of television shows that have been developed because or pilots because it's like, well, I don't know where this is going, so I'll, let's just write a television show. <laughs> you know, let me just write a pilot and then, you know, I'll figure out the ending later because it's the ending is 
probably the hardest thing. It's probably the most elusive thing for even films that have won Best Picture to not be able to wrap things up and in a in a in a truly classic way with some sort of uh, magical, imaginative, powerful, cathartic, um, surprising, revelatory ending. It, so I think that in general, endings are always tougher. So I imagine probably people starting off. Um, I think they're able to get started more easily than to finish something, absolutely. For yourself personally, which of the two did you think in the beginning was one of your traits that you had? Uh, I think that, again, I think sometimes I have the ending and I know what the ending is or I have an idea of what the ending is and I don't really know other things. And then other times I don't know what the ending is and I struggle with like, I don't know how this is going to end. And then you're so trying to solve that, how you're going to end. But um, so it, it, it goes project to project for me. Um, and I don't think it's an automatic, like I can never have an ending. I always like with Love Liza, I always had an idea what the ending was, you know, and but um, with, you know, the short that I made that went to Sundance and it called Dog Bowl, I didn't know where it was going, you know, and the script that I'm, uh, the two projects that I'm working on right now that I want to direct that's like one or the other is going to probably happen in 2019. One has an ending, the other one doesn't. So I'm sort of, so either one of them, it does, so there's no set pattern to that. It's just sometimes you have a vision and you go, ooh, there's an ending, that's awesome. And then, you know, and then other ones, it's like, you don't really know like what the, what the kind of clicker at the end is. So I have not found that um, people, writer to writer, people are good at one thing versus the other. I have found, I have found that writers tend to struggle with endings. I mean, it's obvious. When you watch movies, you know, great first act, great second act, sort of, and then what's where did this go in the third act, you know? And uh, so you have definitely, you definitely have uh, um, some problems with that. So the ending is very difficult. And I think that writers need to embrace that. It's good to just, you know, just be like, it's really hard and respect that endings are difficult. And, and again, that's, that's that humility to hang in there and be like, okay, it's difficult, but I'm not going to settle for less. And I'm going to hang in there until I have a good ending. I'm not going to just sign off because this is too uncomfortable because I don't know how to solve this. And I want this to be over and I'm sick of this script. So I'm just going to use this ending. That's not how you move forward. That's not how you move, and that's not gonna be, the audience is gonna know what's happened. I mean, we know. I mean, there's countless movies that have come out, best pictures that don't know how to end a movie. And you clearly understand, as a writer, for me, and as somebody who's judged the screenplay competition for 20 years, has taught, on the university level, blah, 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 has advised people on screenwriting. I can look at a movie that just won Best Picture and be like, they didn't have the ending. They never, they did not, they did not have an ending, you know? And I'm not gonna, like, I don't wanna throw anybody under the bus. So don't no, ask no, me, no. but like Shape of Water, which just won, I don't know when somebody's watching this video, but, but it had an ending, didn't it? It had sort of a revelatory ending. 
I don't, I did not expect the ending. Maybe some people guessed the ending, maybe, but there was an ending and it was sort of a surprise and it, and it brought things to a close. It was an actual proper ending to a movie that was actually kind of ascendant and, and, and nice, you know, but that often doesn't happen. It's very difficult. Why screenwriting versus novel writing? Like I'm thinking when you talked about getting bored with something, it reminds me of a book I was reading about David Foster Wallace and how he did not like the screenplay format, but he loved novel writing. So why choosing one over the other? Well, why? Or it's just, that's what... I don't know. It just, it just happened that way. I think it's because I wrote theatrically young, as a young person and then... Going forward, it went into screenwriting because I loved movies and stuff, and I always loved. I was maybe I was because I was an actor for a while. Um, never thought about writing a book ever, you know. And um, I understand that, like writing a novel, you can just you know, like I guess you can just write anything you want. It's a very different form of writing. Um, screenwriting is uh, very difficult. So I imagine that somebody who's a novelist would feel a little challenged by that and would rather write a novel where you can just explain every thought and feeling of every single person and explain everything. But a screen, screenwriter has to describe only what a camera can shoot and somehow that's gonna be used as a document with a bunch of other collaborators to create a motion picture. But, um, so yeah, but there's never been, I've never had impulses uh, uh, to write a novel and, uh, and uh, but I can understand why. Uh, and there's not a lot of transfer. I mean, you know, Stephen King doesn't write screenplays on it, not because he can't, he, he probably has no interest. I don't know what he wants to do, but, um, but there's not a lot, of, it's not like, oh, you can write a novel, you know, or I, like, because I've been writing screen, you know, I'm, a screenwriter and have been writing screenplays for tw you know more than 20 years I could sit down and write a novel or a short story or whatever um, it's not easy you know it's not easy to just even sit down and write a play if you're a screenwriter you know it's very different all these things are very different what would you say is the most common overused way to end a script um, <laughs> Uh, what would be what would that be? What would be the common uh, way to end a script? Um, I don't think there's a real common way. I think I think the I think the problems, the endings that are problematic, and maybe a better question. I think it usually is when you when a character does something against their own motives, the motives that you just defined for them earlier in the movie that go against their character. So they do something like that, that a choice at the end that makes it like, wait a minute, did that just happen? Like you don't expect them to do something like that. Or, you know, some something where there is some sort of fantastic ending that doesn't mean anything, something that's implausible, that's something that is unlikely. Again, character doing something unreasonable, or circumstances. I mean, you can look at Get Out. Get Out was a masterpiece, and um, the only thing that was probably problematic for some people, and this is a massive spoiler alert, so if you have not seen Get Out, stop watching this movie, and if you're watching this video, you should have already watched Get Out, so we wanna go and watch Get Out, and then you can come back and watch this movie, so there's your spoiler alert. 
But at the end of Get Out, when his friend shows up, who's the security guard, it seems like something that was unreasonable and not logical. Um, and I think he probably, the filmmaker probably recognized that, but he had built up so much goodwill with us that I was willing to accept that a TSA agent, he was a TSA agent, um, was um, able to somehow find him. And I, and I suspended my disbelief, but that is a pr perfect example of like a film that is a masterpiece, but even how to end it, and I believe his original ending was something much darker and, um, and they decided not to do that, and so he came up with something else. That was probably, he probably didn't choose that original ending because of a logic issue, because he had so much control over logic in that picture, but at the end, he did choose something where we had to suspend our disbelief a little bit, but when you're, the goodwill's been built up by the writer so much, and the filmmaker, the storyteller, then um, we, we can sort of forgive it. And we did sort of forgive it. Some people, maybe not, but I, I did. I said, I said, you know, maybe that's a little, but it is in the realm of possibility that the TSA guy could somehow track him and find him. And uh, I could let that go. But so I think the common problems all often involve logic and characters doing something motives and decisions that are out of character within the character. Wait, well, would they do that? Why would they do that? Why would they make that decision and to get out of the movie? So, yeah. Tropes a beginning screenwriter should avoid that a more seasoned screenwriter can navigate. Wow, that's an interesting question. These are like uh, very bizarre questions. I mean, it's just like, okay. I don't think that, I don't think there are tropes that a seasoned uh, screenwriter are able to navigate that that sounds like that sounds like a that's like a red flag like I'm like I'm like I don't want to do that mommy like I don't want to I don't want to do tropes that I'm not supposed to do when I'm a baby writer it's like it's like we need to tell honest stuff it needs to be original it needs to be plausible it needs to be emotionally available it always needs to be like that you know that needs to happen on page 10 it needs to happen it needs to happen in the first 10 pages it needs to happen between page 62 and 72 I mean it's all over the script and we can't ever not traffic in that currency you know I just like we don't want to we don't want to ever be like well later you can screw around and trick people and I mean obviously there's things that happen where you be you get better control but I can't I just can't it doesn't that intuitively doesn't feel like that a, a seasoned writers ever going to be able to cheat an audience in a more effective way and they're gonna learn tricks or something that, that you know, I mean, there's things with timelines and cheating time and, um, you know, tricking an audience in terms of moving, like, like letting the audience, sort of knowing the audience, like fooling around with a calendar and being like, well, all this is happening and it feels like it's happening over a course of eight years, but it feels like it's also gonna be happening over a year. And there's things that are sophisticated that happen, but I think or that's like saying, well, it's not a trope though. I mean, that's just structure. That's just like, when I started off writing, you know, 25 years ago, writing a play, having three people having a conversation was confusing to me. It was like, okay, who's talking to who? Like four people talking, it was difficult to, to hear that conversation in my mind, let alone have a 150 page script, which I just wrote on contract, 
to with four different arcs happening in three different locations, all kind of coming to, like it was so sophisticated that I never, it was like way out there that for something, I never would have been able to do something like that. Even probably 15 years, 10 years ago, it was too difficult. I would, I still look at it and go, how did you do this? Like, it's like, it's so sophisticated in terms of its structure, keeping all the balls in the air, keeping everything believable and clear and, and, um, and not forgetting anybody and not crowding your cast, all those things. So, I don't know about that question. <laughs> That's a tricky question, man. I don't know. I hope somebody else can figure that out because I don't think that there's tropes that um, there's other things. There probably are things that some other teacher will be able to answer, but I, I think that I don't want to ever promise a new writer that, oh, you'll be able to use uh, tropes, which are suggests um, something that's overused you'll be able to know, you'll be able to use those later when you get more seasoned I was like I don't want you to ever do that I want you to always listen to your voice write what you believe in you know write what you really want to write and that's what we want to give our audiences and that's what we want to think about as our audiences and not like you know what what we're going to be able to get away with later when we know everything or something you know so dangerous Gordy, we had a question come in earlier from Twitter. It's a lady named Mexi, and she's from Australia, I believe. And she says, I would love to see interviews or discussions on developing secondary characters. So any thoughts on developing secondary characters? Well, your cast size is always a concern because you have to give each character enough um, real estate in your script to create enough moments, emotional moments, that the audience can relate to and identify and connect with. And secondary, primary, supporting, um, if you choose to have a character that you're gonna develop, you can arc them out in the same way. It's like, what is the beginning, middle, and end of this journey of this character? I wouldn't get too concerned with theme or how they relate or whatever, but if you're trying to develop any character, you want to be like, well, what is there, you know, do you have enough scenes where the audience can relate and are they going on an emotional journey, an interior journey, an external journey, whatever, the combination of both. Um, but it's, it, it's the same, you build it the same way as any of your characters. You you want to create enough moments where the audience can see themselves. So it's plausible, emotional, high stakes stuff where the audience can see themselves reflected and they identify and they sympathize. So it's the same things. Um, uh, that's how I look at everything. I don't get caught up in, in like uh, formulas as to where things are supposed to happen in stories. Um, I think it's mostly you want to focus on, you know, you, you, and I don't think there's a lot talked about with characters, so it's a very good question. Um, but mostly it's, it's, the screenplay only has so long. You only have two, two and a half hours to go, right? Or something like that, hour and a half. And you want to have as many moments, because a relationship is defined by the volume of moments that we have with the person. If you have coffee with somebody once a year, then if they pass away, you have, a, a, you have one kind of emotional response. You have coffee with somebody every day out of the whole year, 
that's going to hit you more. So in a script, if we see that secondary character or any character and we're able to see them in different contexts go through different things and there's a greater volume of access to them in different in different in different days, different times, different locations, doing different things and bouncing through this plot. That's that's why cast sizes are small. That's why Casablanca, there's three, basically it's a story about three people. That's why you know Harry Potter's eight movies, basically around three people, really around one guy. And there's three people. I mean, there's other characters, but the, but we 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 are not asked to connect with a bunch. You know. Um, you know, when you have something longer like Game of Thrones, you're able to connect with more people because we have more, there's more real estate. But that's only because there's more real estate and that's how we find our way in to the main characters. But still, there's only, there are a few that, that garner most of our attention. If you had someone sitting in this room out here, this beautiful uh, lobby, who'd never written a screenplay and you were gonna give them a five minute screenplay lesson, hit five minutes, how would you start it? What would it be? Um, well, I would just tell them, I would say, I'd ask them if they had an idea, and then I would just say, pull out your laptop or your notebook with your pen and start writing it. I wouldn't, I wouldn't even tell them about format. I would just be like, describe the movie. Everybody knows what a movie is. Everybody knows, everybody's seen it. They're, like our visual vocabulary is so high especially now, 2018, 2019. I mean, you know, anybody can describe it. The, the problem is we st when we start educating people, we're like, read six books, these six books, take this course, do this stuff, watch this video. You know, like, it's like- <laughs> But not this video. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, you can watch this video, but that's what I would do. If somebody was like, I wanna write a movie and I don't know anything about it, I'd be like, what do you wanna write about? Like, what's your idea? And they probably have the idea. They're not like, well, I don't know what the idea is. Though they're gonna be like, well, actually, I wanna write about this guy who wants to do this thing. And I'd be like, okay, start describing it. Just describe it. And then I might say something like, don't talk up, don't describe their thoughts and don't describe their feelings, any character. Don't describe the insides. Just describe what you would see on a, on a movie screen. You know, it's just like, and you know, exterior house day, man walks across and gets in the car, drives away. You know, do not care about doing anything wrong. Just spill your guts, just tell us the movie. Write down the whole movie. We'll figure all that other stuff later. You can figure out where things are supposed to be later. You can figure out everything. I mean, you know, there's so many stories about that where they didn't know what they were doing. You know, they wrote Bridesmaids that way. They didn't know why they brought, they bought screenwriting for dummies or something like that, right? So it's like that fresh voice, it's like, ah, oh, it breaks my heart thinking about all the people that, have, that think they have because we've created this industry where it's all coded and they gotta go take, oh, you gotta learn, you have to learn structure, you have to learn this, you gotta learn all these things. You gotta know what a screenplay is, man. You gotta know what the rules are before you break them. That's all crap to sell books and all sorts of stuff. It doesn't, it's, it, we, oh God, please bring them in that don't know anything about movies and maybe we'll have better movies. I mean, that's the problem. It's like, it's like all this other stuff. It's like, bring in that person. It's just like, I have, as a teacher, I have had people come in with formatting that's just 
like does not they don't know what they don't have access to final draft i don't know what they're writing and it's the most authentic slice of life funny succinct observational genius stuff and they don't know and the, the reason why it exists is because they haven't learned anything about screenwriting yet and then once you start teaching them then all of a sudden they they they, they don't know what they're doing then they don't then they lose their emotional connection they lose that story four-year-olds know how to tell a story they know how to tell a story. Ask a five-year-old, what happened today at school? Well, we went in, beginning, middle, and end, the inciting incident. You can tape it. You can go, inciting incident. So you guys should film courage to do. You should interview <laughs> a friggin' 10-year-old and then put the little flags in and be like, wow, they know all the structure already. So I don't have to go to so-and-so person's course or I don't have to take Gordy's class or anything. You know, you don't have to spend any money and keep your voice. That's the most important thing. I was a, it's like, don't lose your voice. Don't lose your instincts, your childlike instincts for telling stories. It's like, that's what guides us. And I always go back to that. I'm like, I don't care. The thing I just wrote for somebody that in all likelihood, people who are watching this video will see, I don't know what the structure is. I don't know where the act breaks are in it. And it's over 150 pages. Okay. It was a writer. I mean, and it's probably going to be seen by people watching this video directed by a very, very good top director. This is going to happen. And I have no idea what the structure of that is. I literally just took my ideas, plotted out the thing. Now, am I following the rules of character and emotional engagement to like develop and everything? Things you can reflect back on and be like, how do I make this better? But when you're telling me, when somebody's like, what's the five minute version of like somebody wants to write a movie, that's, they watch this video, what I just said. So you've just given us five minutes and 18 seconds of advice to someone that's never written a screenplay. If you took that same advice, let's say it's 1995, you're in your cab, you're listening to like Alanis Morissette, I don't know, it's Chicago, you see the woman at the gas station, the pump, which has sparked this idea. You didn't even know it was gonna be a thing yet. If somebody had been sort of this Jiminy Cricket in your ear, squeezing in this, well, you've gotta know this structure and you need to read this book, do you think you would have abandoned the idea? Um, I don't know. You know, that's sort of a sad thing to think about, but I think that there's a lot of people that get discouraged today uh, because they do feel like they're doing something wrong. And there is that element out there on the message boards, on podcasts, very popular podcasts that talk about black and white, define things in black and white. And it's dangerous. It's less like, it's like, you know, people have tried to figure out where this industry is going and where storytelling is going in our culture all the time since I've been working to write screenplays or whatever. And I've seen all the different iterations of like, well, you're not able to write. You shouldn't write anything, period. You shouldn't write anything about the industry. You shouldn't do this. You shouldn't do that. And all of it's been blown up. You shouldn't write anything. I mean, you know, like an online bookseller an online bookstore wins like Oscars now. You know, it's like, it, 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 like no, don't tell me what anything black and white is anymore. So it's dangerous. And so we, we can talk about like the rules of why people care about movies and like the, the sort of the laws of emotion 
And, 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 and I think no one's gonna really get freaked out. I think that's sort of organic stuff. But when I started off, I read Michael Haig's book and, um, but his book, and you know, I don't even remember, he, I don't think he talked a lot about formulas or beach eats, he might've talked about, it. the only thing I remember him talk, I, the only thing I remember from Michael's book was encouragement. Like he just empowered, he gave me hope, he gave me, and he definitely encouraged me. And so that's what I always responded to. And I responded, he, he seemed to have a sense of like, that people, it was rare for something good to be written, and but he, but he did find it possible. And there were things that he, he was very much, it was a hopeful book. So I think that's the only thing I got. I think that was the only screenwriting book that I ever read a lot from. I don't know if I read the whole thing through, but I would often refer to it. But then when I started, I just was like, you know, I, I literally just, I was like, oh, okay. And I knew something, something about page 30 and page 60 or whatever. And I sort of tried to follow that, but, and I didn't find it difficult to remember that something was supposed to happen or something like that. But I was very much on my own and I wrote whatever, you know? So, but I, I that's why I think that we, um, you know, it's very important for people to remember. You don't have to learn the rules to break them. You can just ignore them. If you feel like you're being expressive and something's cool, that you're writing something's cool, and then you start showing it to other people and other people think it's cool, then that's the only thing we care about. Because we would not have any, we would not have any Fellini, we would not have Orson Welles, we probably would not have Curacao. You know, eventually people have to stop listening to what people are suggesting, and nowadays, you know, people being told they can't direct young women, people of color, diverse, you know, voices that are like have been discouraged or whatever. And all those people, I just like be like, get out of my face. I'm going to, I want to say what I want to say. And that's the only way we move forward, you know, with this art form is when people just say, I don't care what I'm supposed to be doing or who's supposed to be directing or who's supposed to be writing. You know, the only time we move forward when we, when people are like, well, let's follow and on page 23, this is supposed to happen. That's when everyone wants to blow their brains out. It's like, I want something new. And that's why things like streaming and like episodic television did grow probably in response to formulaic feature writing. It's probably one of the reasons because people were like, God, can I watch something else that doesn't feel like everything else and it's because of formula and because people were following what they were supposed to be doing. And it's like, <laughs> not good. But some people have sort of a punk rock ethos and that's in them and they've been that way all their lives. And others are the one in the front seat of the class that right. want to raise their hand and be the teacher's pet. And so some people never want to rock the boat, whereas others are fine having people be totally pissed off at them. It's not about rocking the boat. It's just realizing that emotionally, that audiences don't care about when, what page number a scene is on. All the audiences are responding to is emotional veracity. It's they wanna be sucked in. They want to feel a part of the universe. People go into it, have you ever thought about this? People walk into a theater to watch other people on a screen act out stuff from life and they just watch it. Like, why are they watching it? It's the weirdest thing when you go into a play in a theater, people are watching people argue on, a, on an imaginary stage, we're gonna watch people act out life. It, it doesn't make any, it's like bizarre. 
But the reason why people are doing it is because it gives them meaning for their struggles. They go, I've done that. That's me. I fought cancer. I, you know, my, you know, something happened to me. I won the state championship. I want to be able to win the state championship. I want to be able to come from nowhere. I want to believe. I want to fall in love. I want to survive the loss of a loved one. This can happen. I saw a story about somebody. I mean, this is why it gives us context so that we're not walking around going, why am I doing all this? You see the movie and you're like, other people have been dumped. Other people have been fired. Other people have been discriminated against. Other people, there's been injustice. I've suffered injustice. So have they. I can live. I'm going to fight. That's why people go to movies. So that's, that's the only thing anybody cares about. They don't care if... You know, the point of no return happens on page 63 or some crap. All, so if you're writing from that place, so that's not punk rock. That's just, that's just stories. That's storytelling. That's conservative storytelling, liberal, you know, it's not supposed to be political, but I'm just saying and that's anybody. That's any ethos. That is the ethos. So if you're going to get in the business of the woman you know, the young lady in the front row who's like the person who gives the apple to the teacher, she better get, it's the, it, this, is the, this is the business of emotion. You know, it's the business of dealing, of, of human identification with, with authentic stories. And that's heavy lifting. That requires like sharing of your life experience. It, it is demanding, it's just as, just you know, a surgeon is it's emotionally demanding to be a nurse it's emotionally demanding to, to to be a trash man because you're like looking at people's trash you're like oh my god they threw out this photo album i mean it's like everybody's got to deal with something and they're like you know this is the thing and it's like this is the business this is that business so so you can you know you you can't get around that and when people try and get around that then the great actor becomes the good actor and the great screenplay becomes an okay movie but when you go there and you sell the whole thing and you don't shy away then you're kurosawa then you're you know then you're eugene o'neill then you're writing something you know then you're doing 12 years of slave then you're fearless then you're telling the you know you're doing the thing that people go you know, that's awesome. Black Klansman, just like, you know, amazing, honest movie, you know, about the truth. You know, it's a great movie and it's it's about the truth. And it's like, and it's emotional. It's disturbing. But it's like, but that's but that's where it's that's Shakespeare. You know, that's it's never changed. That's not new. You know, that's not like avant-garde or anything. It's just, that's just how, and audiences are still responding to it because we're human beings and we still are responding to a good story, so. Gordy, we have a quote here from your site and it says, the first thing you should know is blue cat is very hard to win. Our readers are incredibly tough on our submissions because I've handpicked them and my standards are very high. We work very hard and writers who work as hard as we do stand a chance in the competition. So can you talk about that process? Um, well, that's all true. I mean, it's very difficult to win a competition. I don't think I've ever won a competition. <laughs> um, it's very difficult, obviously. Um, most of the writers that place in our competition, they work very hard on their scripts, you can tell. I mean, that's one of the things I um, recognize about um, submissions that do place. It's like they've obviously spent 
a lot of time rewriting, developing, and polishing, and working on their scripts and making them making them function. So there's a lot of work that goes into it. In terms of the readers, um, yeah, we are very, very careful. We have every reader that, um, I hire every reader, and um, I think we've built our reputation over the years of being very strict. We're actually just now going through the list again, making sure reviewing the work from that last year, weeding out anybody that's not up to our standards of what we want the very best coverage, their very best feedback, because we send feedback to everybody. So they read everything and we want to make sure that it's up to that standard. So I'm very tough on our, on our readers, um, on who we hire. Uh, I think we pay our readers competitively um, with the very top um, competitions um, easily. I think uh, we're right up there. So we do attract, I think, the, the, the best um, in terms of a reader that's available for a script competition. So I pick the readers, and um, and after 20 years of judging comp, uh, Blue Cat, uh, my standards have you know obviously elevated in my own ability to assess something gets a little bit stricter and more difficult. So yeah, so you're going up against very, very tough readers that are very sophisticated, um, have a good voice themselves, know what they're talking about, and are aligned with my um, sense of analysis and judgment. And then, then your script is gonna come to me and I'm gonna start looking at your writing from that vantage point. So yeah, that's, I don't think it's like, it is a very, uh, well curated process, you know. Um, it's not, we don't take the scripts and send them off to a development company and who's promised to read them and then they send back some of the ones that they liked but we have no evidence as if they've read them. You know, we don't do anything like this. There's a lot of extra work for Blue Cat but our uh, entrants and our writers appreciate the transparent uh, character of Blue Cat, that you know, your script has been read completely all the way through. Um, the reader is someone who's giving you a fair shake. And, um, and that's something that doesn't necessarily always happen with every, you know, with all submissions, even in the top competitions without naming any names, you know, our, I don't really, I'm fine with whatever anybody else is doing. But for me, as a writer, I want to know if somebody read my script. And that's where this came from with Blue Cat. We started it 20 years ago giving feedback to everybody because I wanted, when people enter Blue Cat, they know that their script has been read. So it's been adjudicated. And do we still have problems with readers or somebody complains or whatever? Very, very rare now. And it's usually when somebody just doesn't like the fact that they don't like the feedback. And it's not really because of some issue. And if there's sometimes there's a rare time where there is an issue with a reader, maybe the reader has gotten sloppy, um, it's gotten maybe too negative, maybe a little bit too discouraging, um, which isn't really our style. Um, we shoot straight, but we, we don't sugarcoat and we don't get all um, mean, <laughs> you know, because that is just nobody responds to that. So, um, so yeah, so that's a good, you know, I think that's a fair assessment of like why uh, Blue Cat is hard to win up. But I think any any competition that receives several thousand submissions is going to be difficult to to come out on top. So.
So several thousand submissions, and this is per year, or do you have it several times a year? Or? Uh, no, we, we, we're annual, so we are always in the fall. And, um, and uh, so it ranges over the years. We went through a little bit of a transition about two years ago. And, but yeah, we get, we get several, a few thousand features. Um, it's changed. We've, we've gone over 4,000 a couple years. So it's like, but now we accept pilots and we accept half hour pilots, hour pilots and shorts. So our feature number has changed because now somebody has a pilot, they're like, well, I really want to send my pilot in this year. They're not forced to send in their feature. So our feature number changes as we get other categories. So as the other categories grow. And so how long is the feedback? Like a few paragraphs? About 600 words. Oh, okay. 500, 600 words. So it's not short. I mean, it's, it's a pretty decent length um, for um, feedback that is included in the entry fee. So there's not, it's not an add-on. You know, it doesn't, it's, it's part of the entry fee. And um, yeah, so it's not, yeah, it's, 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 it's definitely the Blue Cat um, tradition of doing that. I think that we, it's just part of the entry fee and it's, I think it's substantial feedback and people like the feedback. That's why we're still around because we're not affiliated with a large, uh, like the Motion Picture Academy, Nichols is affiliated with a big, you know, we're not affiliated with a standalone film festival or, you know, like Sundance or whatever. I mean, we're just Blue Cat. And um, the reason that we sort of stand with those top people, I think, is our our track record, and um, but primarily because people get feedback. People get feedback, and so developing writers can get feedback. And a lot of people have never received feedback at all, and so it's they, they really like entering Blue Cat for that feature. And what's the time frame for the feedback? Well, it come back pretty comes back pretty quickly. I mean, um, for example, we have an early deadline. Um, that allows people to enter by the 30th of this month. I mean, this is going to probably be an old video soon, but it's like we usually have an early deadline where people can enter and then um, they get their feedback back within like two or three weeks and then they're able to revise their script and enter it by the final deadline. So a lot of people like to do that. They take in the feedback and then they enter it again and, um, and then they can pick to have a new reader or the same reader and that's that's uh, so that's what we've been doing that for several years too. So people like like the sort of developmental process of entering Blue Cat, and um, but that's grown over many many years of us trying different things and trying to give people notes and when to give how many people how many times can somebody resubmit and you know things like that. We've had to change and correct, but um, but the feedback comes pretty fast relatively to. Um, within the course deadline, even, even towards the end, if you enter by the final deadline, it usually comes back within a month, six weeks tops, yeah, depending on how many submissions we receive. What would you say is the percentage of writers that will actually take those notes to heart and, and resubmit? I think, I think well, the resubmissions, it's pretty good. I mean, it's, it's definitely a good chunk of people. Maybe I should know that, but it's like 30%. I mean, it's not half. But a lot of people, because a lot of people do well, they might get notes that they're like, oh, they really liked it. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna see how my script does in the competition. Or people are like, I don't wanna do this. Or they don't have the money to resubmit, you know, unfortunately or whatever. You know, there's a lot of reasons why they might not. Um, but I think, I think it, we've gotten 
our community tends to say, yes, we like the resubmission process. It's not something people are like, no, 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 don't do this. We don't like this. They actually want it. So we've, we've, we've toyed with not having it and people really, really like it. So we, we continue to do it. Gordy, what are some common mistakes that are just simple, not so much the content of the screenplay, but things that people should be aware of when submitting that they maybe mess um, up? Don't submit until you're ready. You know, it's like don't submit if you're not ready. And I, a lot of people want to be ready. Like, we, you know, we've talked about being impatient, wanting the fight to end, the fight for a great movie to end. And they're like, oh, I'm going to just submit it. And then they're bummed out that the feedback comes back and they're like, oh, they didn't respond. Uh. You know, and it's like, work hard on your script. If you're not ready to submit to Blue Cat, if you don't think it's just the, your best work, don't submit it. Don't submit it. Just wait three months and submit to Nichols. Submit to Austin. <laughs> submit to Sundance. Submit to something else. Submit to the local, state, regional contest that's six months from now when your script is really good and you're ready to do it and it's like beautiful and you're really excited about it. But if you're not ready, don't submit. That's the thing is that people send in stuff where they're not intimate with their material. They don't know, they, they don't even know. You can tell that they haven't gone back through it, that they haven't reread it, that it's overwritten, it's too long. And they're, and they're sort of like, well, I'm done, you look at it. And it's like, and then they get, you know, then they have a response when we're like, yeah, we're not connected to it because it's confusing or it's not clear or whatever. And that's the thing that I think most people Again, you're in a rush to finish, and so you want to, You want the. You want the adrenaline of I've just entered a competition. I'm making progress. You know, it's sort of like, and it's better to just stay with a script and be patient and make sure that you know your script. Be intimate with your script. I mean, the scripts that always come out on top with Blue Cat now, after all these years, we get more, a lot more submissions. There are always scripts that are really tight as a drum. I mean, there are people that clearly they, they have worked really hard. Sometimes people write a draft and they proofread it and they send it in and it's like, and it does really well. And they're like, that was my second draft or whatever. But, um, but generally people, you can tell people have like worked really hard and they know everything in their script like the back of their hand. And I think that's the biggest thing that I would encourage people to, to make sure that you know your be you should know your script really well and if you know your script very well then you know it either has problems or it doesn't and if you know it really well then you know if it does have problems then you shouldn't be submitting it to a competition unless you're just like oh i just want blue cat's feedback or whatever and a lot of people just do that and they're like i just want to get some notes now you know would you say when you were writing love liza were you obsessed with it in that you were so in that world and trying to, you saw the one woman at the game. Like it, it meant a lot to you, maybe because you were weren't working or whatever, and so you just focused everything. Do you want that from who that same obsession and sort of like this is everything right here on this piece of paper? Well, yeah. I mean, I think that I, I just well, I think most people that are that have written something special that does really well, they love it. It's, I mean. The thing about screenwriting and going back to like just my mission with Blue Cat and my my the place in Blue Cat in my life and the and the meaning is is that people, you know, everybody we deal with is doing what they want to do, like it's their dream, 
It's their, it's their passion. It's, it's really important to them. So I don't think people are like, well, I'm doing this screenwriting thing, but I really, really like being a, you know, the stockbroker. That's what I really like doing, but I'm just working on screenplays because I don't know. You know, like I'm just <laughs> doing opposite. it because I got to do it. My mom wanted me to do it, but I really want to sell real estate. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's not like that. So everybody we deal with is, is like, it's important to them. So everybody that I talk to, everybody that, everybody's like invested. So there's not really an issue of like obsession, you know, investment, um, priority with anybody who's entering Blue Cat. Everybody's entering Blue Cat is thrilled and excited. They're not like, oh, I won, but I really, really <laughs> wanted to like, you know, open that paint store and, uh, you know, it didn't, that didn't come through and that's what I really wanted. And I run the screenwriting award instead, you know, so. Yeah. But that being said, you say people rush to get their screenplay and you can just tell that they haven't invested enough. So then what is that disconnect there? You, you can tell that this is what they want to be doing, but then they submit something sometimes, not everybody. Of course. Well, it's but but it's because, you know, because we, we have to learn that, um, you know, when you're when you're a developing writer, you know, and you ignore the feedback that you're trying to give yourself, but you're like, no, but I want it to be done and it's done. Let's go shoot it. You know, it's like, then you don't get the response. You go, oh, I should have kept rewriting. I knew it wasn't good. I knew I had problems with it, but I submitted it to Blue Cat anyways. And then I got feedback and I, clearly it's not ready yet. And then, then the season, the more, the seasoned writer, the more, uh, you know, developer, the one that is more mature is like, I'm not going to submit that because that's not ready. I need to like make it ready. Then I put my best foot forward. How do you monitor yourself in terms of wanting to put something out there and knowing, okay, you know what? I know myself, this isn't ready yet. Yeah. I mean, I, I know like myself, like, yeah, I mean, I know that it's not good enough and then it's, you know, or I want, you know, sometimes I'm like, I want to get feedback. So I'll have a table reading or I'll have somebody read it. I'll be like, what do you think? You know, you want some feedback, but in, you're definitely not gonna like send it off to the producer or the actress that's attached to your project or whatever until like until you've done a lot more, you know? And so there's certain, certain stages where I'm like, you know, it's like, you already know that this is broken. You don't need to like send this out again or you need, you got a you already have given yourself notes. So we give ourselves notes, then we get notes from other people, then we can move it down the food, up the food chain. But um, generally we have to, we, you know, it's, it's all about being honest and transparent with ourselves and, and having, you know, and knowing that, but you do learn that for, by, by sort of the early days when you're like, well, I'm going to just, I want to see, I want somebody to read this. And you just, and then you're like, okay, I think I'm going to wait next time before somebody reads it because that wasn't too pleasant. They didn't really respond. And by the way, P.S., I knew it wasn't ready, but I sent it to them anyways because I just wanted somebody to read it. You just want to like make it, it makes it real when somebody else reads it. I wrote a screenplay, but after you sort of get over the novelty of that, then you start to wanting like to make write better work. So we had some YouTube questions come in earlier, and this is from Harry ML. That's the username. How to make characters consistent but act in surprising ways? 
You know, writers have uh, impulses inside them that they often don't follow because they want to stay on track with an outline or they want to stay on track with a beat sheet or a plan and or they have expectations for what is appropriate for a certain story or a kind of genre that they're writing. And so they ignore the impulses or the intuitive uh, thoughts that they have, the imagination sparks. And those are the things when you surprise yourself with an idea, you need to embrace it. You know, whenever something comes up in your mind, you know, we self censor a lot. And we're like, well, I mean, he can't rip her shirt off right there, can he? <laughs> and it's just like, no, that's not a, I mean, maybe not. Uh, it's gotta be something else. And it's just like, well, maybe he does. And maybe she like grabs his wrist after that. Cause then you're like, and then what happens? Then what happens? Then what happens? Then you're going down the rabbit hole and you're making things up and you're surprising yourself. That's how we create, you know, characters. Obviously, we, you know, we want the character to still be the character is would the character maybe want to rip the dra rip the shirt off or whatever or or grab the paint can and or run out of the car and start running out of the field when they were supposed to stay in the car in the outline and then they started running toward the football field when you started to write it are you going to allow that to happen and i think we no, writers have to listen to their instrument listen to their imagination you know you don't talk about imagination a lot in, when we talk about the craft of screenwriting, we don't really talk about imagination, like what that is and like how we like, what if, what if that whole thing? And we don't cultivate that because it really is so messy and so nonlinear and spontaneous that it's hard to write a book about it. Like it's hard to organize a system, uh, a beat sheet or a formula about imagination. And, but that really is how you create unsurprising revelatory behavior. It's sort of like, and then what if this happens? And you're just like, oh my God, you know, we were talking about the Meg and, and how people like kind of just, you know, are like, well, I'm not gonna see this shark movie with Jason Statham and it's a genre movie, like silly, stupid movie, right? But there were a couple moments in there that were completely surprising. And I thought, A plus, that's stuff that doesn't happen in movies where it's like the audience completely fell into a lull and then the plot went left. And, and it was like, and it wasn't like, oh, give me a break. It was like, oh, this is plausible and it's arresting and it's a surprise. And it very likely probably came from the imagination of their author going, well, and then they thought of it and they thought, well, why not? Let's try that and, and, and embracing it. Because initially you come up with something like that and you go, oh, you know, an audience would be like, what? You know, so. It, it, you know, I think that that's what it is. It's like paying attention to your own impulses and listening to your own voice. You listen to your own voice and, and, and not have it, and let it be the primary thing in the, in the creative act of your, screen, of your script, then, you're, then that will allow for these surprises to happen. It reminds me of when uh, Sharp Objects first came out. I didn't see it when it first initially came out, but I watched people's reactions on Twitter. 
and by seeing that, then I was like, okay, then I want to see it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because they were like shocked, and let's assume these are real Twitter accounts. Right, right, right. People were, they couldn't believe it. You know, and Amy Adams can play so many amazing characters, but she right, was right. playing a, a damaged character that right. was so fun to watch. Right, right, right. So, it, so absolutely. I mean, that's what we want to do. And it, and that all comes from someone being, being, um, allowing themselves to be creative. You know, you've got to say, like, you know, I'm going to just have her, like, run out of the car. And now, and that's going to totally screw up my outline, but it's really cool. But it could, maybe I could have a lot more work to do because I'm making this decision. But I'd rather do a lot more work and not be lazy and embrace it, you know, because it's really revelatory and awesome. But... People don't want to do that. They're like, oh, if I ever do that, then everything's screwed up. And I want to, so I'm just going to stay on course on the most, on the thing that's not surprising. And people are predicting because I'm predicting everything because I'm following a roadmap. You lose the roadmap and you start flying by the seat of your pants. That's like, well, what's going to happen? I don't know what's going to happen, you know? Do you think that's really laziness or that's wanting to be, again, the teacher's pet? versus the Johnny Rotten in the back, you know, that... that um, well, of course it's fear. Of course there's fear of like, oh, I need to do it this way or it's not going to work out. But I hopefully, I think mostly writers end up, they won't upend their outline or they won't up the, uh, end their plans or whatever. I mean, a lot of them will say, well, look, if it goes off my script, I always embrace it. But I don't know. I don't, I, I mean, I think I think a lot of people... I think we write outlines a lot of times to make the, the process faster, but at the expense of something being more surprising and revelatory. A lot of things don't need to be outlined. If they're character driven, you can sort of discover a lot of, a lot of really special moments in a story by just seeing where it goes. A uh, heist movie, a murder mystery, that becomes more difficult to just sort of follow character impulses because you've got more of a puzzle to figure out. It's like, okay, how is this going to work? But, um, you know. So this question came in from Right Heroes. Uh, that's the YouTube user. Does a no-name person who submits to the competition with no previous sales, no contacts, have a chance of winning if the screenplay is good? Absolutely. I mean, every, almost everybody who submits is at that same situation, and we don't. I don't ever look at names or agents or anything like that when we're, if somebody is like, you know, I mean, it absolutely, there's no, they, everybody has the same chance. And, you know, if anyone is submitting to Blue Cat and they already have, I mean, you know, so most people are in that case. And so absolutely not. Um, there's no prejudice towards people that have no name or haven't done anything yet. Okay, perfect. Moving on, CCH is the YouTube user. Are there any Blue Cat submissions that, after all this time, still stand out in your memory? And if so, why? Absolutely. There's uh, several scripts that stand out. And um, they stand out because I, I was overwhelmed by them, you know, sort of in awe of them. They're just special. They're beautiful. Some of the ones that were finalists or didn't, totally make it but I've just never forgotten them I, it also happens with students that I've taught you know I've taught a lot and um, their scripts that I've never forgotten 
and it's usually it's usually the, the original voice. It's the somebody tried something that was way outside the box and that the, you just have never seen before, and um, and they and they were able to pull it off. There was something really brave, and I believe everybody has the capacity to take that risk. I don't think that there's some people that are like, oh. Um, you know, I'm not, I'm not brave. It's like everybody has the capacity. Everybody has that story that they feel uncomfortable to telling, or they think that it's like, why would no one's going to make this? And most of the scripts that I remember and that do well with Blue Cat are people that are like, you know what? I'm going to write this even though it's embarrassing because um, they're going to think it's about me, or they're going to think that it's, uh, they're going to think I'm, I'm interested in something like this. Or I'm going to write this and there's no chance. Why am I wasting my time on this? Or this is not something anyone's going to be interested in. Or no one's going to buy it. You know, Somebody just says, I think that this is special. I think this is different. I've never seen this before. I think this is funny. I think this is beautiful. I think this is tragic. I think this is awful. Or I think this is so scary. I'm going to write this. And those people tend to produce work that you know really stays with you. And um, I mean, Anna Liliana Poor's work, you know, the stones that won Blue Cat, you know, she ended up taking um, some of those characters and making Girl Walks Home Alone at Night. You know, they appeared in, in, she sort of repurposed those characters and that little bit of that world and the feeling of that world in the movie, in her debut movie, Girl Walks Home Alone at Night. And, um, and you know, I, I never, you know, I, I, I never, I never for, for, will never forget um, crying at the end of, of that script, you know, getting to the end of that script and the tears welling up. And I remember exactly the couch I was sitting on. I remember Gary, the tennis coach that got made by Sony um, as balls out and uh, very much changed, the script very much changed. But when it won, um, I remember laughing. I still remember where I was when I was reading it and laughing out loud. The first couple of pages of that script and, you know, I gave that script to a producer and Sony um, ended up getting involved with that and making that movie with Sean William Scott, um, and it's called Balls Out Now, and, and, and that was the that was the script. So, so these kind of experiences, you know, yeah, absolutely, you, they stay with you. It's always because somebody wrote what they wanted to write, and they had no fear about it, and they any any misgivings, any anxiety, any second thoughts, they just said, screw it, I think this is going to be a cool movie, and they wrote it.